Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 23. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites. Chapter 9. To Agordo and Primiero, Part 2. At length one last great step is surmounted, and an immense park-like plateau scattered over with clumps of larches and firs, threaded by numberless tiny torrents, and radiant with wildflowers, opens away for miles before our eyes like a rolling sea of rich green sward. This is the summit of the Gosalda Pass. The village of Gosalda, a rambling hamlet lying high on the mountainside, facing Monte Pizan, Monte Prabello, and the Valley of the Mies, is reached about two miles farther on. Here we put up for the regular midday rest at a very humble little albergo, where, however, we are well content to take possession of a clean landing, a deal table, a couple of wooden chairs, and an open window commanding a magnificent view over the valley and the mountains beyond. We ask, as usual, for bread, cheese, and wine, explaining that the wine is for the men, and that we require teacups and spoons for ourselves. But the landlady, a stupid, civil body with a goiter, shakes her head and stands bewildered. Taza, she repeats, wonderingly. Taza? Finding it impossible to make her understand what Taza are, I sketch a cup and spoon upon the whitewashed wall, whereupon she triumphantly supplies us with two pudding basins and two metal gravy spoons of enormous size, so that we look like comic characters taking tea in a pantomime. Echo! You carry fire about with you, exclaims this child of nature, staring at the blazing Etna with the open-mouthed astonishment of a savage. Not caring to enter into an explanation of the nature and uses of spirits of wine, I venture to remind her of the bread, and inquire if she has yet served the men with their wine. She nods and then shakes her head again, with a pause between. Vino si, she replies, oracularly. Pane no. Wine, yes, bread, no. It seems only reasonable to suggest that, having no bread in the house, she should send out for some immediately. But no, she wags not her head this time but her forefinger, a gesture purely Italian. It is of no use to send out for bread. There is none to be had. There is none in the pièce. No one has any, no one in Gosalda, not even the parocco. It all comes up from the valley when they have any. It ought to come up twice a week, but the baker is not always punctual. It is now five days since he came last, and there is not a crust left in the village. But why do you not make your own bread up here in Gosalda? I asked, when she came to the end of this astounding statement. Yes, Signora, we have no baker. And what do you eat when the baker does not come? Yes, Signora, we eat polenta. Happily we had a little bread in the luncheon basket, but less than usual, having given some to the mules after their hard scramble up the pass. We were better off, however, than Giuseppe and Clementi, who got nothing, not even a dish of polenta, and this in a village numbering at least some four or five hundred souls. The peasants of the mountain district between Agordo and Primiero seemed, as far as one could judge in a single day's journey, altogether poorer, dirtier, and more ignorant than elsewhere. Most of those whom we passed on the road or saw at work in the field had goiters, and few understood anything but their own barbarous patois. Even the landlady of the Gosalda Albergio, although she was no doubt superior to many of her neighbors, spoke very little intelligible Italian, and had no kind of local information to give. 
Being asked the name of the noble mountain that formed the main feature of the view before her window, she replied that it was the Monte Cerita, then that it was the Sasso de Mis, and finally admitted that she did not know for certain whether it had a name at all. Yet this was a question that she must have been continually called upon to answer. The mountain, however, as set down in Ball's map, proved to be the Monte Probalo, the highest point of which, sometimes called Il Pise, and sometimes Il Pizocco, rises, according to Mayer, to a height of 6,733 feet above the sea level. A second pass, the Paso della Serita, yet lies between us and Primiero. The distance is reported to be about two hours and a half from Gosaldo, and a good mule track all the way. The path begins pretty well, being steep but shady, and winding up between rocky banks, high hedges, and overarching trees. This, however, is too pleasant to last, and soon it begins to exhibit, in an exaggerated degree, all the worst features of the worst parts of the Gosalda Pass. The Gosalda Pass was steep, but the Cerita Pass is indefinitely steeper. The Gosalda Pass was wet underfoot, but the Cerita Pass is for miles neither more nor less than the bed of a small torrent. Nor are other and larger torrents wanting, for twice we have to dismount and make our way on foot from stone to stone across rushing streams some thirty feet in width. The wonder is that any one should be found to live in a place so difficult of access. Yet we continually pass cottages and clusters of cottages by the wayside, and the great valley down below is quite thickly populated. One woman, standing at her garden gate, nursing a wizened baby of about six months old, inquires eagerly where we come from, and if we do not find it a bruta paes. Being assured, however, that the signoras consider it not bruta, but bellissima, she is struck quite dumb with amazement. And where, oh, where are you going, is her next question, asked with a frenzied kind of eagerness, as if her life depended on the answer. I reply that we are going to Primiero, Pradazzo, Vigo, and other places. To Primiero, she repeats breathlessly. To Pradazzo? Jesu Maria, what a number of bad roads you have before you. So saying, she leans out over the gate and watches us with unfeigned compassion and wonder as long as we remained in sight. Now the valley sinks lower, and the mountains rise higher with every step of the way. The road achieves an impossible degree of steepness. The mules, left to themselves, climb in the cleverest way, and act as pioneers to those on foot. At last comes a place which can no longer be described as a road but a barrier, being in truth the last rock wall below the plateau to which we have all this time been mounting. Here even the mules have to be helped, and, partly by pushing, partly by pulling, reach the top at last. And now another great prairie, somewhat like the Gosalda summit, only more wild and barren, opens away in the same manner and in the same direction, like the enchanted meadow in the fairy tale that stretched on forever and had no ending. A little lonely Osteria, in the midst of all this wilderness, is so joyfully hailed by our famishing guides, who find here not only good wine but good white bread and plenty of it. It has to be a short rest, however, for the day is advancing and we have already been nine hours on the road, including halts. How long is it now to Primiero? asks Giuseppe, as we are moving off again. To which the good woman replies, in the self-same words as she of Gosalda, two hours and a half. As a rule, the finest wild flowers throughout these mountain districts have lovely exposed situations, 
and flourish most luxuriantly on heights not far below the limit of vegetation. On the Cerita, instead of growing in rich confusion as at other places, they separate into distinct masses, showing here as a hillside of fire-colored lilies, yonder as a pinky dell of ragged robin, farther on still as a long blue tract of wild vetch interspersed with slender spires of Canterbury bells. No painter would dare faithfully to represent these incredible slopes of alternate rose and gold and blue. At last the path begins to dip, and our hopes to rise. Every moment we expect to see the opening of some green vista with Primero at the end of it. Meeting a decently dressed peasant of the farmer class, however, and putting the same question to him, in the same words as before, we are confounded to receive precisely the same answer. Circa dua ore y mezza, signore. About two hours and a half, ladies. Profoundly discouraged, we ride on after this in mournful silence. It is now more than three hours since we left Cosalda, and yet we seem to be as far as ever from Primero. If we were not tired, if we were not hungry, if the mules were not beginning to stumble at every step, the thing would be almost comic, but as it was, we go on funereally, following always the course of a small torrent, and skirting long pasture-tracks dotted over with brown chalets. By and by, having made another two or three miles of way, we come upon a gang of country folk at work in the new-mown hay. This time Giuseppe raises his voice and shouts the stereotyped inquiry. The answer comes back with crushing distinctness. About three hours. I begin to think we are under the dominion of some dreadful spell. I have visions of jogging on forever, like a party of wandering Jews, till all four have become old, gray, and decrepit. Suddenly Clementi turns round with an eye all smothered glee, and says, "'Don't you think, Signora, we should get there quicker if we turned back?' It is a small joke, but it serves to make us merry over our misfortunes. After this we put the same question to every one we meet, to a group of women carrying faggots, to an old man driving a pig, to a plump priest riding sonsily on an ass, like Sancho Paza, to a woodcutter going home with his axe over his shoulder, like a herdsman out of livery. Each, of course, gives a different answer. One says two hours, another two hours and a half, a third three hours, and so on. And then, all at once, when we are not in the least expecting it, we come upon a grand opening, and see Castle Pietra on its inaccessible peak of cloven rock, standing up straight before us. Another moment, and the valley opens out at an untold depth below, a glittering vision of chestnut woods, villages, vineyards, and purple mountains, about whose summits the storm-clouds are fast gathering. Echo Primiero, says Clementi, pointing to a many-steepled town at the end of a long white road, still miles and miles away. This castle Pietra, the chromolithograph of which, as seen from the valley, is already familiar to most readers in Gilbert and Churchill's book, is the property of a certain Count Velsberg, by whose ancestors it was built in the old feudal times, and who still lives in Primiero. The solitary tooth of rock on which it stands has split from top to bottom some time within the last century, since when it is quite inaccessible. The present owner, when a young man, succeeded once, and once only, by the help of ropes, ladders, and workmen from Primero, in climbing with some friends to the height of those deserted towers. But that was many a year ago, and since then the owls and bats have garrisoned them undisturbed. The castle stands, a lonely sentinel, at the opening of the great Dolomite cul-de-sac, known as the Val de Canali, 
and is a conspicuous object from all parts of the valley north of Primero. The final dip down from the Castle Pietra rock is achieved by the means of a stony and almost perpendicular road, compared with which the descent from the Gemi on the Luke side is level and agreeable walking. Loose stones that roll from beneath the foot, and abrupt slopes of slippery rock, make it difficult for even pedestrians with alpenstocks, but it is worse still for the mules, which slide and struggle and scramble in a pitiful way, being helped up behind by the ends of their tails ignominiously. At last we reach the level, hurry along the dusty road, pass through the ruinous-looking village of Tonadigo, and, just as the church clocks are striking 7 p.m., ride into Primero. Here at the Aquila Nera, kept by Signora Bonetti, we find rest, good food, a friendly welcome, and better rooms than the outside of the house, and above all the entrance would lead one to expect. That entrance is dreadful, a mere dark arch leading to a goat stable, but then the kitchen and public rooms are on the first floor, and the visitors' rooms on the second, so that the house may said to only begin one remove above the level of the street. It is curious how soon one learns to be content with these humble Tyrolean albergos, and to regard as friends, and almost equals, the kindly folks that keep them. Nor indeed without reason, for setting aside that perfume of antique republicanism that seems yet to linger in all the air that was once Venice, those Tyrolean innkeepers are, for the most part, peoples of ancient families who have owned lands and filled responsible offices in connection with their native communes ever since the Middle Ages. Thus we hear of a Gadina of the Ampezzo holding an important military command at the beginning of the fifteenth century. The Giacomellis, who now keep the Nave d'Oro at Prodazzo, were nobles some few hundred years ago. The Pezzis date back as far as Caprile, as had records to show, and take their name for Monte Pezza, on the lower slopes of which they yet hold the remnant of their ancient estates and the Sersenas of Forno di Zoldi, of whose inn I shall have more to say hereafter, are mentioned, as we find by Mr. Gilbert's book on Cadore, in documents more than five hundred years old. I do not know whether the Bonettis of Primero claim either a long bourgeois pedigree or a past nobility, but they are particularly courteous and hospitable, and I see no reason for supposing them to be in any respect less well-born than the others." It is only right that persons travelling, or intending to travel, in these valleys should be acquainted with the foregoing facts. And it would be well if they remembered they are not dealing here with innkeepers of the ordinary continental stamp, but with persons who are for the most part quite independent of the albergo as a source of profit, and ready to receive strangers with a friendliness that does not appear as an item in the bill. If the accommodation is primitive, it is at all events the very best they have to offer, and it is immensely cheap. If the attendance is not first-rate, there is a pleasant homeliness about the domestic arrangements that more than makes up for any little shortcomings in other ways. The mother of the family generally cooks for her guests, the father looks after the stabling, the sons and daughters wait at table. All take a personal interest in one's comfort. All are anxious to oblige. To treat them with hauteur, or with suspicion, or to give unnecessary trouble, is both unjust and impolitic. I have seen old Signora Pezzi wounded almost to tears by the way in which a certain English party secured all their possessions under lock and key every time they ventured outside the doors. The same people, on going away, disputed every item of their moderate bill, 
as if, no matter how little they were charged, it was to be taken for granted that they were being imposed upon somehow. The ultimate result of such conduct on the part of our dear country people is sufficiently obvious. The old innkeeping families will ere long close their houses against us in disgust. A class of extortionate speculators, probably Swiss, will step in and occupy the ground. Newer and smarter, but far less comfortable hotels will spring up like mushrooms in these quiet valleys. All direct communication between the native townsfolk and the travelling stranger will be intercepted, and the simplicity, the poetry, the homely charm of the Dolomite district will be gone forever. End of section 23